0: Hola, yo soy Margarita y estás escuchando Limehouse Podcast.
1: This is Barry Ashton and you're listening to the Limehouse Podcast. What a good name that is. Hi, I'm Tom Brake and this is the Limehouse Podcast. Hello, this is Nick Clegg and you're listening to the Limehouse Podcast. I hope you enjoy. it. You
0: because I'm not persuaded by the case for war. This is what positive politics can do. Hello and welcome back to the Limehouse podcast. Good god, it's it's full on winter now, guys, and what better way to warm you up than the smooth voices of myself, obviously. This is a smooth voice and Nick Clegg. So, Nick and I uh, chatted obviously earlier on in the year and this is a sort of a catch up on Brexit and, and uh, obviously stuff in his personal life um, to do with Antonio, his son, and the cancer treatment he went through and thankfully the cancer battle that he won. So we, we cover a lot of issues. After the chat, I'm going to jump you straight into me and Steve Anglesey talking about the, uh, the Nick Clegg interview. We, we, we also talk obviously uh, broadly about Brexit. It's pretty funny. I mean, it's, if you haven't listened to the uh, New European podcast, please do. I urge you. It's so funny, and it and obviously the New European paper is equally as fantastic. Amazing writers there, uh, offering a fantastic hope and 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 obviously pretty pretty goddamn funny commentary on Brexit itself. Because most of it is n- some of the people that talk about Brexit has, are hysterical. Obviously, Brexiters. I mean, Brexiters. Oh my. Oh my god! So anyway, look, um, it's a long episode, so I'm just going to get you straight into it, and I hope you, I hope you do enjoy it. Okay, ciao, ciao, bye. It's been quite a mad year for you, mm. obviously, personally, politically, and what have mm. you. Um, how have you kind of coped with it, with everything? I mean, obviously, Antonio and what have you, and, and Miriam and yourself—you've you've been really through the wars. How has it been?
1: If you ask me, what it's been like to be a parent of a very sick child, yeah. Um, Well, any parent who's had a very sick child listening to this will know it's, it's, it's all consuming. It's all you care about. It's all you think about. It's all you worry about. Mm. You know, it, it just, it shoves everything else to the sidelines. and until your child is better, it's really your sole, you know, focus and, um, obviously having a child with cancer is, is a terrible shock and the treatment is brutal. and you know, I'm acutely aware that uh, our son had a cancer, which in many respects is more treatable than many cancers other young kids have. And every visit of the numerous, numerous, numerous visits, month in, month out, to um, the teenage cancer unit in uh, UCLH, uh, where he was receiving his chemotherapy, just seeing the other children there mm-hmm. um, didn't half, you know, put things in perspective. Because of course, unfortunately, we just saw all these other children who were. Who were you know many of whom were suffering even more than he was, Um, but uh, gosh, I mean I don't think I've got anything startlingly interesting to observe other than the fact that you do what you always do in life when you when you encounter very difficult things is you can either be paralysed by anxiety or fear about it, or you can just try and do whatever you can to make it. But you can't, I'm afraid, wave a magic wand to make your child better. You wish you know of course I wish you could. I mean my first instinct was a very kind of visceral one, actually, I remember it very distinctly, which is sort of this completely irrational, but very powerful kind of wish to sort of find out whether there's any way that I could take take it. it. It's it's, it's very sort of strong, quite primitive parental instinct. And then you, and then you really just practically, because there's a lot of practical stuff involved with um, the complexities of the treatment, you know, your your child needs to take over 20 pills a day, they... He became neutropenic at one point, which means he had no defences against any kind of infection. You're in and out of hospital, yeah, all that. Yeah, 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 yeah. They lose all their hair. They look, you know, they, they suddenly change from being cherubic children into, yeah. you know, looking obviously quite different. And 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 you and you have to obviously also make sure that your other children are, are okay and that they're not
0: hmm. too
1: overshadowed by it. So you're, how can I put it? You you just become very busy at at, at the sheer. Kind of routine and and rigmarole yeah. of illness and its treatment, and I think I think a lot of people would recognise that. And so you yeah. slightly immerse yourself
0: into the practical stuff which you to, can control to to, to to control it to have yeah. a sort of element of control. Of what, I mean, I remember when my mum, I was only about sixteen, seventeen. My mum came home um, after being to, to the hospital and saying that she had diagnosed with breast cancer. What? Yeah, and it was she survived. She did. She did survive. Um, unfortunately, I know a couple of people that haven't, but. I think it's that immediate, that immediate shock. Mm-hmm. You know, the epicenter, like that, the, the black hole that can consume you. Mm. It's almost like how that, that those first few hours, days, as yeah. a family, yeah. you yeah. respond to it to, to be able to cope with the you know the yeah. the of furo- furore- it all. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And uh, as you all know yourself, I mean, ca- ca- oddly enough, I think cancer is a curiously unhelpful word because it's like a great word bomb. Uh, And, you know, when you hear the words, your son or whoever you love or you care for uh, has cancer, it it does have a slightly paralyzing effect. But these days, you know, there there are, of course, A, so many different kinds of cancer. He had a blood cancer. Mm -hmm. There are around 150 different kinds of blood cancer, uh, not to mention all the other kinds of cancer. And actually, modern medicine has has, uh, developed an increasingly sophisticated way of tailoring treatment in very different ways to cancers which have very different features and so very very quickly you get you know as a total non-expert and that i certainly was then and still remain a non-expert obviously um but you very quickly learn that you know one cancer is very different to another and yeah the side effects of one treatment is very different to another and you even get into the absolute kind of
0: you know, the all the all the um, de- details of the composition yeah. of one chemotherapy
1: mix is different to another, and all of that. Yeah.
0: Clearly, you had to, I mm. suppose, as a parent mm. to survive. Mm. I mean, it's just one of those things where suddenly everything stops. Mm. You know, and I mean,
1: but every yeah, no, everybody listening to this will have experienced that. Everybody you know, we're all, we're all mortal coil, coil, all of that and all of that, it, yeah. when you're when you're reminded of your own mortality or that of those who, who, who you love and care for, then obviously everything, including all the raging, perhaps most especially all the raging debates about politics, um, sort of fall into um, into abeyance. And of course, all of this was happening while at the same time, you know, you had you had Brexit and a new election and all that kind of sort of stuff yeah. Um, so yeah it was a lot of juggling but yeah. um, but my life has always been a lot of juggling to be honest
0: well yeah no I, I can imagine this is really it's really hard actually to ask other questions now politically because no, no, no. I, I know it's just it's just one of those things you know it's, you've been through a lot and it's just uh, doesn't stop immediately you I know I know. On, you know to just then go oh and Brexit is just yeah. so ugh. and I'm not quite Laura Koonsberg yet anyway but um no so I've got quite a few questions yep. from listeners and what have you but and I'll just read them out like the um monotone dyslexic I tend to be so the common reassurance for Lib Dems is that their line on Brexit will be equivalent to the to the one they took on Iraq and that they'll eventually be vindicated, is uh, is that realistically given? Is that realistic given that the views?
1: If the question is seeking to imply that um, the Lib Dems sort of specialised in uh, deferred righteousness, that's certainly true. Yeah, I mean, from you know, we we've always as a party um, said stuff that has been unfashionable and then has sort of become become mainstream later, or indeed warned against stuff that people. Uh, only see later uh, and obviously we did that in Iraq and obviously we're doing that on Brexit and or indeed my experience of the coalition government I mean I, I, I lose count now of the number of people who come up to me in the street and say that was a really great government wish you guys were back in government yeah. they clearly didn't feel that at the time otherwise they would have voted for us in larger numbers but I do think what we a lot of what we did in government is now appreciated and uh, more in hindsight than it yeah. was at the time so yeah, you know hindsight is a lovely thing and we tend to be on the right side of hindsight but i think it's also yeah. good in politics to aspire to be on the right side of um, of of, of uh, the voting public um today yeah. and not just tomorrow and on that i think um obviously parties play uh, placing great store in 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 making the pitch for an eventual uh, an eventual uh referendum on the final deal but I do think it's important to remember that the public and the voting public, you know that there's several turns of the wheel before you get there yeah. and I think one of the reasons why maybe that message fell on slightly fallow ground in the election was saying to voters vote for us for another vote in an entirely unspecified future in circumstances which voters find quite remote and difficult to imagine
0: yeah.
1: it's not a very sort of direct appeal so I, I do think we need to at the same time, without losing obviously that refrain, also focus on a lot of the things that we know generated uh, the disgust and fury and frustration with the uh, with the status quo, whether it's stagnant wages or a, mm. or a broken social care system or a, a broken housing market. And so I mean, and, and link the two. You know, you you can't you can't fix that which is
0: domestically
1: um, broken in Britain, whether it's uh, stagnant wages, or some of the things I've alluded to. If at the same time you're trying to extricate yourself from a club of which you've been a member for 40 years, I mean, in other yeah. words, it's a bit, it's a bit like you hear, you know, the argument that you hear from Labour, and they sort of say, "Oh, we want to stop austerity." I always say to my Labour friends, I say, "Look, if you want to stop, if, if you want to stop austerity, you've got to stop Brexit. You can't do both. Mm-hmm. You have to choose." And I think, I think we need to be a bit. So, in other words, maybe what we should do is link our objections to Brexit. More to the kind of things that we know people viscerally care about the NHS, austerity, yeah. injustice at home rather than to this slightly kind of remote concept of another contest where people are going to be invited on another Thursday to go to the polling booths when they're actually honest, the vast majority of the public think that Brexit has already happened or should already have happened. So maybe what we should do as a party is kind of flesh out our Brexit appeal and link it more to some of the domestic stuff that we know people really do care about.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, I, I take your point there. We, we do need to like, sort of make an umbilical link, or well, at least the public do, to, towards Brexit and the inner workings of uh, our social structure. <coughs> I, f- I feel at the moment, if the Lib Dems are to make that leap, I don't know if that's going to happen at 7.5% in the polls at the moment. I mean, that's even lower than, than it was at the time of the general election. Obviously, there's a spike in the general election because mm. people know who the Lib Dems are. But is is it realistically... Is it realistic to expect the Lib Dems to make a a fight back? Or is it Paddy Ashdown sort of more, we need a social movement rather than...
1: Um, Look, the last thing Vince needs
0: uh,
1: is, you know, sort of comments from beyond the grave from one of his predecessors. Um, And it's, uh, boy, do I remember this as a leader? It's very, very... uh, It's... uh, There's a great cottage industry of people who constantly provide unsolicited advice. Um... And, and, I you know, I absolutely don't don't think it's ever wise to write off the fortunes of any politician or party. I mean, you know, the the, the yo-yo fortunes of the Lib Dems and the Liberal Party before that mm. over the last 50, 100 years suggest that, you know, what goes up goes down, what goes down goes up. And we are, you know, this is now a, a, a wearily familiar thing to observe, but we are in extraordinarily volatile times, not only in the United Kingdom, but in sort of the democracies across Europe and North America, so in a sense anything can happen. All I would say is that if you are uh, as distant as we clearly are from power, um, then it's always wise to make the most of the freedoms of opposition, Uh, and I don't mean just scoring pot shots against the government, because that's the easy bit, churning out the press releases saying, Mm -hmm. you know, the government's pants and they've got it wrong and this minister should resign and that, uh, you know, and all that, that stuff is kind of par for the course. And bluntly, is kind of the white noise of day-to-day politics, and doesn't really make much of an impression on the electorate. I think one area where we do have a unique kind of um, uh, brand, almost, is—and if you go back to the you know the days of Grimmond you can see that—is is as not just a political party, but also a political party that had a sort of pioneering effect on on, on policy. That we always we always were the kind of first to. Advocate reforms. The first to talk about the environment. The first to, to advocate political reform. The first to uh, you know advocate and stick to the European issue. The first to advocate significant tax reform, pensions reform. And I you know I saw when we went into government in two thousand and ten, you know our cupboard, our intellectual cupboard was bursting full of great ideas. It's why you know to this day I think it's remarkable that it was the smaller party in that coalition that was was able to drive the agenda on everything from tax reform to uh, you know the pupil premium from apprenticeships to industrial strategies from pensions reform to you name it and and I think so I think what we do need to demonstrate is a real intellectual restlessness to 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 on a and, and not just in a sort of slightly kind of cumbersome way of only ever dis- debating things at our conferences, but on an ongoing basis, becoming a forum, a meeting point, a gathering point for people who are interested in exciting political ideas. That's what we can do now in opposition, and that's what I think we should make more of.
0: Yeah, that's kind of what Paddy was saying. To be to be fair. Yeah, and I'd I'd, I'd sort of, if he was, I I yeah. Kind of, I mean, I mean,
1: broadly agree with the idea that you, you know you. Well, it's good to know if, if you're not in f- power, then then then. then uh, be, be intellectually, you know, be intellectually fecked. Well, <laughs>
0: restless. Yeah, but it's also like what Bob Dylan said. You know, when you got nothing, you have got nothing to lose. You know, I'm not saying there we've got go. nothing. Bob Dylan and Paddy Ashdown. If they yeah. agree with
1: each other, then I tell you, I think God, you know what's yeah. to stop them. I wonder how long Bob Dylan's actually got
0: left. I mean, everyone else and has is dying. He, that uh, he's
1: actually a liberal Democrat according to this podcast? Anyway, I,
0: I, well, uh, well, I mean, Nobel. Yeah. We have a
1: Nobel Prize winning Dem now.
0: I'd love if Bob was actually listening. Hey, Bob. Yeah, I doubt it. you never know Nick you never you never know your book yes which I listened to which one um, the the most recent one of course Um, although they're both so wonderful I'm such a big fan no but I mean it It, it's I really love the the opening uh, gambit not gambit quote uh, Sophocles Mm. Um, all men make mistakes but a good man yields when he knows his course is wrong the only crime is pride Mm. that's that was uh, essentially when I'm driving along in my van to work and I'm ranting about Brexit every day, and my little dog next to me. That is kind of what I've got down to now. Pride. This is all pride related. <laughs> is, is it not that? It's probably what I'm it is Brexit, which is pride, right? No, I don't think it is pride, but I but I but I
1: do think it's. Um, but
0: that's what's going to bring us down. Uh, well, uh, look, I think it's just
1: human nature that if you've made a choice, and particularly we've made a cho- where you've made a choice. And you've, and you've actively expressed that choice by putting a cross next to a, you know, or on a ballot paper in a wholly, highly polarised debate, I think it's just human nature that you kind of double down on that choice. So, you, know, you don't want to be told you're wrong and you don't want to be told you should change your mind. And so one of my motivations for writing that small book was just to try, and it's only one book amongst thousands and, and there are many other more compelling voices who can do this, but I do think we need to instil in people the confidence to change course if they want to. You know, actually the, the stronger, more courageous thing to do in life always is to say, if you think you're heading in the wrong direction, well actually maybe I should stop and change course. And uh, because the tendency is always through inertia really, is just to stick with, with you know, with, with the kind of direction you're taking. And yeah. so I, I, I think trying to normalize the idea that just as we do this every day in life, it's perfectly acceptable as a country to say, oh, hang on a minute, you know, this, this, this path isn't leading to the sunny uplands we were promised. Um, yeah. It's actually leading sort of downwards to some pretty, uh, you know, some pretty unsavoury places. L- let's change course. And mm-hmm. it might sound rather trite that, but I so happen to believe that um, th- that is one of the main things that's missing in the public debate at the moment, mm-hmm. is that I think there are many, many people across the country who have increasing misgivings about Brexit including some people who voted for Brexit who think oh this is not quite as easy or straightforward as I thought but they feel that there is nothing that can be done about it because they basically feel the trains left the station the ship sailed and I think it's terrifically important to keep saying that of course in a free democratic society you're always free to change your mind if you want to
0: no, I like, I like that sentiment of your book I just wondered what was the, the most pleasurable part of writing that book I, For me, I suppose, like most people When I was at a rally uh, in uh, West, or whatever And you started to give Paul Dacre a hard time In the Daily Mail And the crowd went apeshit for it They loved it What, I mean, do you not Do you have a continual message for Paul Dacre And the, the, head, the hard headbangers of Brexit
1: like, Well, my guess, who the hell do they think they are? how dare they without you know ever putting themselves before the British people without ever kind of appearing you know out of the kind of dark recesses of their lairs in fancy beautiful offices in London how dare they lecture everybody else about what ordinary people think I just I just think it's astonishing that we've somehow collectively allowed ourselves to become the playthings of a very small group of Angry old men like Paul Dacre, but there are others, you know, the Barclay brothers, Rupert Murdoch, etc. These these old male, you know, financiers who funded the uh, all the propaganda from the anti-Brexit groups. Yeah.
0: Didn't you, you know, they're not, they're not
1: I mean, you know, look, I mean, politics is a rough old business. And all politicians, myself included, when I was in politics, are uh, slagged off for this, that and the other. But at least politicians put themselves before the public. Mm-hmm. You know, these people don't have the courage actually to put themselves before the public. Uh, it's a, it, it, it's completely absurd how um, everyone from the BBC to the Conservative Party seem to be so overwhelmingly preoccupied about what some splenetic old man who edits the Daily Mail, who's got f- rapidly declining readership, you know, who cares? But most especially, what right does he have to, to sort of slag off our judges, to uh, claim that any politician who has, you know, who thinks for themselves is an enemy of the people and so on? And the the thing is, I saw this long enough when I was in politics. There's always a tendency, oh, you know, don't answer back. Don't say anything about these editors. Don't say anything about these newspapers. And if there's anything that I've learnt, perhaps a little too late in the day, is that if you don't answer back, they're like bullies. If you don't answer back, they'll just carry on throwing their weight around. And and it's it's really
0: important we should answer back. When were you not answering back then?
1: Well, I was I think, but but you know needless to say, I, I, no doubt because of my own failings, I'm sure uh, but um, you know I, I didn't exactly have a, a sort of army of folk who were ready to uh, amplify my message when I was in um, power, but look, that's all tedious history, which I don't want to rake over now, but right now, what I do care about is that it just makes me livid that you know millions of young people have said in the ballot box in overwhelming numbers that they want a different future. And yet it's a future foisted upon us by the prejudices of these propagandists and vested interests, unaccountable vested interests, these rich, angry, old men, that, that, that is kind of winning the day. Now, I can't stress enough, I have no argument with the voters. I totally understand why people voted Brexit. I may not have done it myself, I totally understand it. Why, why, in a sense, why wouldn't you when you were being promised this utopia? Yeah. Yeah. What I find absolutely, you know, I just cannot get over is the mendacity of these people Mm -hmm. who, in an act of shocking lack of transparency and and, and escaping all forms of accountability, have lied to the British people. They knew they were lying to the British people. I mean, what did Paul Dacre think when he slapped photos and headlines about the Mediterranean migration crisis for, I think, 17 of the last 23 days in the run-up to the referendum? He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew that if he perpetuated the lie... our membership of the european union was somehow bound up with violence in syria or terrorism in the bataclan and and in brussels he quite rightly calculated that would that would cause people to take fright but it was a lie it was deliberate and i think it's very important that we call them out for that not least because they have been very very skillful much more skillful than the kind of pro-european forces at somehow describing a pro-european position as an elitist one and yet i am livid that a small highly elitist clique of, of of angry old men seem to have played sort of puppet masters to yeah. to British politics they're the elite we now the brexit elite in charge of this country and I, and i just think it's a it's essential that we turn this argument on its head and condemn the brexit elite for what they are which is people who've lied to voters and are now on the verge of getting away with it.
0: I was just thinking about today and yesterday about David Davis and this uh, a report. Yeah. Now they're saying like maybe it didn't, this, sorry, this is in reference to the 58 point thing on how Brexit is going to affect business and whether or not exi- exi- it even exists or not. Mm. And it's caused a lot of um, upset. A really great tweet from Chuka Amuna, if I can find it. it, is basically, essentially stinks of a cover-up plain and simple. Uh, ministers don't want the public to know that the fact is uh, the, the impacts on Brexit, this has less to do with um, any supposed under, um, undermining of negotiations and everything to do with the pulling of the wall over people's eyes. To, uh, totally and utterly unacceptable. Um, yeah, of course it is. Well, but listen,
1: I'm afraid it's
0: part of a, a pattern where
1: Um, these kind of opportunists, charlatans and liars who led the Brexit campaign from Michael Gove to Paul Dacre and everybody else in between, claimed that in doing so we were going to restore to these these great islands of ours uh, venerable British traditions of parliamentary sovereignty and democracy and what's the first thing they do is run roughshod over the mother of all parliaments. And and it, it, you know, and they get away with it. They get away with it. It's just it's bit, you know, under the tyranny of all of their kind of hysteria about enemies of the people, traitors and so on, they are being traitors to very, I think, important and long-standing British traditions of 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 representative democracy. And it, it distresses me immensely that not only are we losing our place in the European Union. Mm. But actually, our own democratic traditions are being shredded in the process. Um, one day, one day, they'll get their comeuppance. Of course, they will. You can't, you can't run a coach and horses through both the truth and every single check and balance in our democracy yeah. forever. Um, my only concern is that they get their comeuppance before they get their way and push us beyond the point of no return at the end of March 2019.
0: Well yeah, I mean obviously the um, last week we we had the wonderful news that the uh, medical agencies, the banking industry would be moving moving away from our shores, I mean what, if that's just the tip of the iceberg, I mean obviously you've got a checklist of what the, the stuff that could go down what is what is the when is the turning point going to happen you know when is the worm finally going to turn what well, amongst out? people yeah
1: people well I think you need to you know I think you need to first understand that there are Jeremy Corbyn <laughs>
0: well <laughs> well
1: let's come to that I mean look, first I think you just have to accept there are a sizable number of people and I, I can't put a figure on them I don't know let, let's call it for the sake of argument a good third of the British people who will stick with the kind of Brexit faith come hell or high water and you know even if we're enduring sort of Russian levels of economic deprivation, they still think that it'll be worthwhile. I think you just have to, you know we are a highly polarized country, so there's always going to be a body of opinion who believe that, and in a sense there's no point worrying about that. The people you need to consider is those people who in a sense don't really care about the issue that much one way or the other, and either voted remain or Brexit, but didn't really do so with a great deal of conviction and are now a little bit confused about what's going on, unimpressed by the incompetence of the government. They're developing more and more misgivings about what it really means in practice. They're not convinced there's not much they can do about it. Yeah. And they're the ones you need to reach out to. And they're the ones who need to be shown that there's always a uh, an escape route uh, from this. And that is, of course, where Jeremy Cor- Corbyn comes in. It's why I've said in my book that I think Jeremy Corbyn is arguably the most important politician in, in, in Britain today when it comes to Brexit. I, I, I mean, let me illustrate the point. If Jeremy Corbyn gave a... A television interview this evening and said I've you know looked at this long and hard and I've considered all the options and I consider what's best for the country and I've looked at this shocking display of incompetence of the government and I've come to the conclusion uh, that I will instruct all Labour MPs to vote uh, for our continued full participation in the single market and the customs union and we all and I will instruct all my MPs to vote against anything which detracts from that aim if he said that overnight He would kill the government's Brexit negotiation strategy stone dead. In my view, he would quite quickly spearhead a body of opinion in Parliament which crosses parties, which is not thwarting the will of the people. is not even actually standing in the the way of Brexit altogether, but is just arguing that there is a better way of doing uh, doing Brexit. Um, So, you know, just that step alone is something he could take very, very easily. And it's quite remarkable... That he doesn't. The, I mean, the only time I've spoken to him, I mean, literally a snatched conversation. You know, as, as I was getting up out of a, a chair in a television studio, and he was coming in to give his interview. But I, you know, I said to him, I said, "Look, you want to be the next prime minister to 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 end austerity, whatever that means. You cannot end austerity if you don't end Brexit." And I, and I hope these arguments, not because I've said them, but because they are clearly arguments which are raging within the Labour Party. Are starting to shift opinion. And the final point I would make is this but is what that. What he say to you? Well, I, don't know, he just sort of, I mean to be fair, it was a bit of a sort of you know, I mean, he didn't sort of say very much in response, but um, and it was a snatched conversation. But the, the more important point is this is this is that um, you know, the army of youngsters who waved their flags and chanted Jeremy Corbyn and all the rest of it in Glastonbury were overwhelmingly kind of pro-European folk. Yeah. I think they will be mortified and very angered indeed, if they if they saw Jeremy Corbyn instructing his Labour MPs to vote for, for to go in the lobby with Michael Gove and John Redwood and Bill Cash and Priti Patel yeah. to go in the lobby with them and let Labour MPs to vote for a Tory Brexit. I mean, I got torn limb from limb by Labour for governing with the, the Tories. I tell you, they would betray every remnant of progressive promise left in the Labour Party if they signed up to the Tory plan for Brexit come next year. Yeah. So for those reasons and so many others, I am hopeful that bit by bit, if somewhat unheroically, the Labour Party will change its
0: position. Well, it's Keir Starmer, isn't it? Have um, we've got one, one more question. I mean, obviously, a lot of people wanted to know about why you didn't use the data on Jared O'Mara I mean, obviously, you're a very principled person. You and Miriam both decided not to use that. He is a piece of sorry, sh1t. Yeah. And I, I just think that was an open goal. I think there are a few people within the party who were like, Nick, what, what the hell, man? You could have, you could have just.
1: Um, well, uh, f- firstly, to be, f- I mean, I, I'm no angel. I, th- I mean, to be fair, it, when when can we first, can I quote that? No, <laughs> don't, don't worry. There are plenty of people who quote it themselves, but. Um, you know, to be fair, I think when we sort of heard some of this stuff about a month before, I mean, most people, uh, most observers, including the Labour Party, thought that the Liberal Democrats were going to w- win, hold the seat again, anyway. So, you know, I, I'm not sure if everyone kind of was thinking that we needed to kind of cast around for new, mm-hmm. for new, you know, to, for new sticks to you know to beat him with. Okay. Uh, I mean, in the one, you know, I'll give you an example in the one hustings we had in Sheffield Hallam by the way, and remember this is in the context of him and the Labour Party going around telling the voters of Sheffield Hallam that he was the great champion of the local area and I somehow was not, having dutifully served the area for 12 years. He didn't even well turn up. So, you know, just, it just, it, it was a straight, no, he didn't even turn up to the hostages. So It was a strangely sort of, it was a strangely sort of disengaged uh, sort of contest. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, and this, this is not, honestly, this is not out of some sort of po-faced it's just not the kind of campaign I'd want to run. I mean, what? So you start you start putting rumours on, on leaflets and, you know. It, I but there it, weren't rumours, though. Well, there were well, facts and we know there were facts. No, Well, we know the facts now, but quite a lot of the stuff, I mean, you know, Sheffield is well known as sort of Britain's largest village. There's lots of sort of chatter around. But I, I didn't, anyway, look, it was just simply not the kind of campaign that I was going to run. Uh, as I say, I, it, it didn't feel at the time, anyway, that it was the kind of campaign that would, the kind of needed that. Yeah. Um, but, but, but the thing, that, I tell you, the only thing which, and, and, and look, if you know, if that's my naivety or whatever, then then I pay the cost for it. But, um, and I certainly wouldn't, I wouldn't do it again. I just, just, I just don't think it's a, a great way of running campaigns. I'm not sure if it really appeals to to folk that much. But the bit that angers me with hindsight is that the Labour Party has respe- has responded with sort of. You know, great shock and horror that Jared Amar now appears to have these unpalatable views. They knew it. They knew it, for heaven's sake. And they selected him as a candidate. And some of them I've even heard said, we selected him as a candidate because we didn't think he was going to win. So what? You select someone with homophobic, xenophobic, racist views because you don't think they're going to win. I mean, it's just a ludicrous excuse. So what I find so irritating, what I often find so irritating with the Labour Party, is they have this awful holier-than-thou sanctimony that somehow they are a sort of moral cut above the rest and yet they sanctioned and selected someone who who had you know deeply regressive views and they did it in full knowledge in full knowledge that there were real problems around him so anyway that's what <coughs> that's what they'll need to <coughs> account for in the end
0: yeah no it is a it's just, it was just pretty god awful for a lot of people to see you lose that seat, but anyway, um, I'm trying to end on a positive note, and um, yikes, I was going to say, what do you think of Donald Trump, but I think everyone thinks he's a big fat wanker, so it doesn't really matter, um, but Nick, thanks so much Not at all. for popping in. So I hope you enjoyed that. We, like I said, are going to now jump straight into my conversation, uh, post-Nick Clegg breakdown of the interview, and, and, uh, and it's funny, and it's informative. What more? What more do you want? Hey, say hello to Steve Anglesey, people.
2: I really feel sorry for Nick Clegg. He's such a nice man. Yeah.
0: yeah. Uh,
2: and uh, and you know he, he he knew what he was getting into with the coalition, but yeah. it duly. But I guess you always hope, don't you? I used to write about football, and um, oh cool. And Who do you yeah, support? I used to write. I was I was a football writer, and there was a really nice guy called Frank Clark. And he was the manager of Nottingham Forest and he was quite a successful football manager. He was a lovely bloke and he came to manage Manchester City, who were the team that I support. And Manchester City at the time were a basket case and they had no money and it was just a fucking... I was running like the club magazine at the time, so I knew what a shit state they were in. And I was really sad for Frank Clark. And I said to him... But all the problems and, you know, the team are terrible and there's no money and the stadium needs to be replaced and all of this. Why are you leaving your nice, lovely job in Nottingham where you've lived all your life and people love you to come and do this? And he said, well, I know all that, but if I get this right, they will put up a statue of me. Yeah. In Manchester, and that's what. Nick, and Nick Clegg must have fucking hell. This is going. To, they will use me and abuse me, and they'll fuck me over in the referendum. Mm. Um, and but they will do all this, and no little party ever comes out of a, the, the junior partner ever comes out of a coalition looking well. But he must have thought at some point. I, but I could get this
0: right, and then they will put a statue
2: of me up. Uh, and it's really yeah.
0: Well, there's man, no, and he's only fifty years old, so you never know. I, what I want to know from you obviously you've, you've you've clearly had a conversation with him in the past what what's your impression of the man? Well my impressions on
2: meeting him were extremely favorable I was it, I was struck by um, I was struck by the sheer volume of people who uh, and let, let's be honest it, I mean it wasn't Nick Clegg's sort of it wasn't his Sheffield Hallam constituency but it was his his natural constituency. I was struck by the number of people who sort of went. You know, this the, the people who were around on that evening when we met him, who said, "This guy is is the most articulate anti Brexit uh, front man that there there could be," and yeah. he is the sort of person uh, who should spearhead the campaign a- 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 against Brexit. Unfortunately, for for Nick Clegg uh, and for uh, for those people, as we know, there are there are, you know there are large swathes of of the population who. Have come to dislike Nick Clegg and um, and uh, and to tune out what he says. Um, and it is for it is for what happened in in coalition and uh, uh, and what happened with the tuition fees. And you know, I mean, when you talk to him, he sort of says almost that he knew that would be the price of of coalition, but he he thought it was in the national interest to do, and that's also very laudable. Um, but you know, while I. Take on like well, I um, well I, I will listen to anything that Nick Clegg says, and I think he's extremely articulate, uh, and I think he's he's much of what he says is entirely correct. Yeah. Um, there are, there are I'm aware that there are, and he is aware that there are a number of people who uh, who not not disagree with him, but just will not listen to him at the present moment. Whether yeah. that will change in time, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I, I would I would hope so. Um, and it kind of opens up, doesn't it? The, the, the whole, the whole thing of, um, you know, it, it was, it was a, a, a real shame to see him look, see again, um, obviously your interview has, has touched on sort of personal things, which are, which are extremely difficult for him at the moment. Um, but it kind of goes to the, it, it kind of goes to the, the, the whole thing of, of, um, well it's where the where the liberals are where the liberal where the lib dems are with with um in this war against i hate to use the word war that's not right but where the it goes to the whole thing of where the lib dems are in this uh, and what their contribution is in this fight against this awful thing of of brexit which is 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 coming nearer and nearer and um uh, and so it's just—it's been a very, very strange year. You know, we went into a political—we went into a general election campaign, didn't we? In which, uh, you know, it was it was reasonable to assume that the the, the Lib Dems would would um, would come surging back. Um, mm. And, uh, and would be the anti-Brexit sort of standard that we all rallied around. And, and that, that kind of was over after the first day of campaigning.
0: So, yeah, later in the interview, we talk about Jared O'Mara and, and what happened there. What, what's your take on all that?
2: I was speaking to somebody the, on the Wednesday before, you know, the day before, who'd been working in the Labour H- HQ for, for the full duration, who confidently told me that they were, they were going to get absolutely hammered. I mean. And you know, you should put money on 80 seat majority and 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 above. So, um, so I don't know. I mean, I guess if you'd have been on the ground in Sheffield Hallam on the day ticking off the names, you would have begun to have seen whether something was up. But, but, but in the days and you know, a couple of weeks out, would you really have known that something was mm-hmm. up? And, and, and you know, in this guy. Um, and you had to sort of, you know, try and dig all the, the skeletons out of this guy's cupboard. Yeah,
0: yeah. I think, yeah, it's, like I said, I think it is benefit of hindsight. I think it is one of those things where you go, well, like you said, you know, two weeks beforehand, is someone saying that, is someone saying that we need to use that level of, of dirt on someone? That is it, I mean, I mean, And to be honest, what Nick was actually really, what he says later is, he was more angry that Labour their kind of points and check system completely is, is, is in total meltdown or meltdown there's no disregard for like the quality of their candidate and and they knew sure. they knew about this sure. guy so
2: yes they did yeah they did I mean but that, that doesn't negate the fact that he well if he hadn't lost it to him then he probably would have lost to somebody else that the <laughs> more palatable that the Labour Party had, had, had put up because it was I mean it, it just was part of that surge and it, I mean it sounds like um, you know it, it does sound like a, a fairly catastrophic um, uh, a failure to use information that, 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 you've, that you've not got and that you think you've, you can keep in your locker I guess and yeah. um, which is a great, shame, you know, it's a great shame. I th- he, as, as I said before, he, he is such an articulate advocate mm-hmm. for this. Uh, he could, uh, he would, you know, uh, uh, the forensic picking apart of um, of, of these, uh, well, the forensic adding of these amendments, but the forensic sort of dismembering of of the, the government's position, which Keir Starmer has done so well and so patiently, is, is something that. That Nick Clegg has been, you know, great doing in the past, and he's a, a much, he's a much, uh, he's a much better speaker than than, than Keir Starmer. Um, yeah. I think he, you know, he w- he would have had a uh, a, a great um, a great few months uh, uh, if he'd been in uh, still been in the chamber um yeah I but, mean, um, but lot, yeah so, so so it's a it's a, it's a, a, a huge uh, it's a huge shame and i could only imagine that it is a mixture of uh niceness and complacency or or whatever or or, or just sure she you know sheer surprise at this um at this kind of labor surge um which which yeah. slightly is, you know, happened at the expense of the Lib Dems, didn't it? Partly because of the problems yeah. with, with, with Tim Farron.
0: I open up the, uh, I think my second or third question to Nick Clegg saying, like, you know, that he uses Sophocles as an um, example, starting yes. chapter. For me, it is. It's what it's boiling down to is how much, how what the percentage of people are willing to swallow their pride on this one and go, yeah, what, what you just said earlier.
2: I think it's very, I think it's very telling, isn't it? Um, that the 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 talk about the 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 talk of the 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 brexiteers has moved not it, they are no longer now pretending that this is going to be a smooth ride and uh, a, yeah, a, an easy passage to the to the to those sunlit uplands that you talk about. Yeah. But they are now basically saying we can't stop this now and uh, and we, we must just press ahead. <laughs> um, even you know I've heard you know Ian Duncan Smith the other day. I turned on the TV and Ian Duncan Smith was saying, well, of course this is a big risk. you <laughs> Hang on a minute, you didn't say this. Of course there's a big yeah, everyone knew that and you went well you no. didn't really mention that at the time did you but you know
0: um, steve we're all we're all brexiteers now
2: we're all brexiteers now
0: it's a, such a sad sad situation such a dick. it is
2: but- It is is a really sad situation and i mean the, the so we've so this is a, a this is a self-inflicted wound isn't it but mm. we shouldn't just be we shouldn't be so Complacent as to think, well, we, you know, we've made a bit of a mistake here, but you know, it'll be okay because we are Britain. The fact is that the people who were our partners will actively, you know, will now actively be against us. So, so the 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 Dutch in Holland, and we've got a piece about this in the in the New European that that comes out um, on the first of December, Friday the first of December. Mm -hmm. Um, So so holland have just cut their rates uh, corporate tax rates for for companies that are headquartered in holland and that is you go well, so what well look shell and unilever which are two enormous firms who uh, employ you know thousands tens of thousands of people mm-hmm. in this country are both ang- anglo dutch firms they they've got anglo dutch ownership yeah so so even if the headquarters of Shell and Unilever go from here to to, uh, to the Hague or or Amsterdam or wherever, um, that that's bad enough. But then mm. you know you tend to want to keep people nearer to you, don't you? And it, maybe it's yeah. going to be cheaper for Shell and Unilever to make the things that they that they make uh, to create the things that they create if they're. You know, if, if more of their production lines are, are over in, in Holland, and this is just going to keep happening and happening again.
0: Yeah. Um Going back to the Clegg interview really, really quickly. You know, he does yeah, say sure. that Jeremy Corbyn uh, could stop this whole process tomorrow by simply having, <clears throat> you know, literally change everyone's fortunes by deciding to have a, a moment of clarity, of, of sensible clarity. Obviously, says, hey, you know what, guys? This is kind of bullshit, and all of my, all the PLP think it. You know, or most of the Tories, it's like thirty or forty headbangers that don't. But you know, this is crazy. We're just gonna, we're just gonna, we're gonna try and fight this for you. and he, and he, he could literally change the fortunes of the entire country by doing that.
2: Yes, he could, uh, and I think he's probably moving towards that. But he's, uh, there. I mean, there is always the. It it it's going to be the 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 thing of the will of the people, which I mean. all oh, right, will. we Look, we know it was we know it was thirty six percent of the of the, the people actually, right. and all of this. It would be a it would be a brave, it would be a brave, and I would venture foolhardy person who said, who stood up and said, "We, we I'm going to lead a, a, a thing where you know." half of 650 elected MPs are going to um, are going to just ignore what 17 million people said yeah, however yeah, yeah. You, you know it's per- it was it is perfectly right to say what we what we uh, want is a deal and then we want a uh, a period where we can take that deal whatever your deal is and put it in front of people and put it in front of the whole country. Now they've had two or three years to absorb what this really means, yeah. and to say, do you want this deal, or do you want to stay in the European Union? Yeah. Uh, and and that's what you know. That's what I would. I, I mean, that's the that's the ideal scenario for me. I I, I don't think that you can get rid of this by uh, just by parliamentary means alone. I think we are going to have to have another vote on this. And yeah. I mean, I'd kind of. You know i'd kind of sort of resigned myself uh on the the on the day that we started the new european so we actually you know we came up with the idea that the, the morning after the the referendum yeah. and we were kind of going well if we could get a, another referendum within you know 10 or 15 20 years that would be a great result Yeah. Um, uh, but now i actually think that we'll get one much before that or we'll get a or we'll get a general election, which is in fact a, a, a single issue one, uh, mm. like the sort of the you know the night in first nineteen seventy four general election.
0: Steve, you got to big up the new European podcast because I mean I'm probably going to do it anyway at the beginning of the show. It creases me up. Uh, Good and yeah and 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 factually it's fantastic. You know a lot like the the paper itself. So yeah, which,
2: you, yeah. I mean we try and. It's not a heavy political uh, podcast. There are great heavy political Brexit podcasts um, mm-hmm. uh, available. I-, I hate to say that we we um, we're, we're shit, we take but, a know. sideways look through an off-kilter telescope at Brexit because <laughs> we certainly don't do that. I think we yeah. attempt to try and find the humour in uh in these um in these sort of dark times yeah uh we certainly attend, as the new european does you know we, we we try to be um provocative we try to be funny yeah we try to um to, to personalize these things we try and 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 bring them down to um to to, to brass tacks and talk about yeah. things effects on people rather than uh directly on people rather than sort of you know huge um huge uh, huge um sort of more airy uh, fairy ideas yeah. um so yeah it's a I, I mean it's a it's a it's one of the it's been one of the the new, the new european and the new european podcast has been one of the, the the best things for me to come out of brexit because if we weren't doing this i would just be seriously depressed and i imagine that it is and that's what i imagine i imagine that i am dealing with we're dealing and writing for i'm talking to a constituency of people who are seriously depressed about this mm -hmm. and spend much of their time shouting at the tv or (laughs) with their head in their hands and once a week uh in print and and once a week uh via the great medium of the podcast they can sit down and actually go this is you know christ that's well i can, we're I can in- begin to see the humor we're all in this together yeah well, exactly as, we're all a, in it together as a, Yeah. as a man a great i was going to say great man once said but yeah a man once said <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that's this week's episode of the limehouse podcast wow you've had a lot I hope you've enjoyed it. As always, we really want you to to get in, involved with what we bring you. Please keep on uh, sending us questions. I, obviously, you heard me read some out there. You can do that via the medium of Twitter, so that's Limehouse Pod, or you can just hook us up on uh, on Fe- look us up on Facebook, and um, we, we're always. We're always really interested to hear what you have to say. G- give us some chit chat on there. We're really enjoying some of that. You know, obviously, uh, hello to uh, Tom Turtle and uh, St- uh, Steve, Steve, um, Steve Little. Uh, Sam Kapling, all the all the legends, all the all the listeners out there. It's so wonderful to have your support. And um, what's coming up next week? Well, we've got Peter Egan coming on the show, the actor and animal rights activist. We're going to talk uh, a, a bit about um, animal rights. Funny that, isn't it? He's he's a wonderful guy. Um, I'm going to go down see him. We're going to talk uh, probably a lot about Soy Dog, the Soy Dog Foundation out there in Thailand, which you guys know I have a. Quite a lot of time for, and I hope you enjoy that chat. I hope I bring you back some decent fodder for your ear holes. So yes, please, guys, check us out uh, on on all those on those you know Twitter and Facebook and what have you. And also, if you feel like donating uh, a monthly little bit of dosh to help keep this podcast flowing and and the um, the nuts and bolts all oiled and what have you, then please do. You can go to the patron website that's dot ncom and you can simply just give us a few bucks a month and it will help us take this podcast forward into the 21st century even more so than it already is now if you can even contemplate that but yes please feel free to do that and we will love you forever guys take care of yourselves wrap up warm winter is here is on its way. Everybody. Everybody. Now, it's like, amazing to me how Mark Maron like, gets all his guests into his garage. And like, fuck... They come
2: to his garage, yeah. Yeah,
0: it's fucking unbelievable. I mean, it's not unbelievable. It's fucking how many millions of people listen to it, so it's not real.
2: Well, tragic. that's that's right, yeah. Maybe yeah. you could pick people up in your van.
0: Well, I mean, the thing is, I could, but there is a word for that, and yeah, well, um, there is, yeah, or, or there yeah, is no I think, word for it. And I, I think Ted, getting... thats
2: how Ted Bundy got started. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. yeah.
0: Fake broken arm. I could like pretend to have like broken secateurs. Could you come in my van and? and think yeah, my... he did yeah. do the fake broken arm, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was very. Yeah, quick he wasn't a very
2: that. nice man, was he, Ted Bundy?
0: He wasn't. He was a bit of a bastard, and um, it...
2: not even misunderstood. <laughs> <laughs> just, just not very nice. <laughs> Oh, he's misunderstood. <laughs> no, not really. Is he the one that tries no. to
0: blame Jesus for it? He was hearing God telling him to do it or something. Was that another? I one?
2: don't know what he. I don't think he tried to blame Jesus. I think he just went, "Yeah, I'm quite evil, mate."
0: Yeah, basically. Yeah. I wonder. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if Farage will do that one day. He'll just be like, "It wasn't me. I was hearing voices. It was th- the Holy Jesus that was telling me."
2: No, I imagine that, that- <laughs> if he just. You know, it would be great, wouldn't it? At some point, he just <laughs> went, I'd, oh, "I've been such a dick." <laughs> <laughs> See, yeah.
0: I'm an absolute. Mor- it's not my fault. Uh, yeah. In an Alan Partridge voice, it's not my fault. Uh, it was. It was the, the Christ telling me, uh, you know, 350 million and 70 million uh, Turks. Okay.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wow. That would be good if he had a, some kind of conversion. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'd just rather some misfortune came to him.
0: Yeah, I mean. Painful misfortune. Well, he's already had a plane crash. <laughs>